Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career onto the next level. We do this by listening to the stories and the learnings from top industry leaders out there in the field today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Mike Tammer. He is the head of data science at Uber Advanced Technologies Group, which is the part of Uber focusing on self-driving cars. Mike is also a lecturer at UC Berkeley for the Data Science Master's program. Mike has had a wealth of experience leading data science teams in startups, being an educator, and working at unicorns such as Uber. He also tells us about his exciting new project called Fake or Fact. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you think. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. Been looking forward to this for quite a while. So I'm excited that we get some time together. At the beginning of the show, I always like to ask guests how they came into data. What was it in your case that pulled you into this world? For me, completely by accident. I actually did not go to graduate school for machine learning. I focused on more uh, mathematical physics areas in a field physics program. And I got interested in simulations for one of the use cases I was working on in my graduate work and really learned how to code fairly late because of that. Because I, you know, turned out to be very uh, lucky because it meant I got into first simulations and machine learning and uh, both of the Bayesian and non-Bayesian methods and ultimately was able to, the industry is uh, sort of right place, right time, has been looking for people that are interested and enjoy working with data. So I, uh, I got kind of lucky that way. What type of problems were you looking at with the simulation work back then? It was uh, entirely physics related. I worked on uh, some issues in the with respect to the geodesic principle and general relativity, and then also with criticality phenomena and phase transitions. And so, in the latter, that that's where trying to look at simulations and pick the right topological convergence uh, relationships. That's finding good sort of like an armchair math mathematics approach, but I, I wanted to have a, a little bit more experimental investigation just to make sure that I was on the right track, which is what drew me to doing simulations there. Very interesting. And what do you see as the role of simulations in today's environment? Quite a lot uh, that I get to deal with uh, from day to day. There's, of course, a limited amount that I can talk about what I do in my day job, but simulation and working with simulations and coming up with better ways of simulating environments for machine learning algorithms is a, is a real growth industry. And so there's lots of use cases, everything from safety to pricing to reinforcement learning applications that I've been really excited to investigate over the last year. Really interesting. I definitely want to ask you uh, more about those. But before I do, could you give us a, a bit of an overview of your career journey to date? Sure. I finished up my graduate work and ended up doing getting hooked in with the right people because of what now would be called doing data science consult. Uh, uh, you know, back then data science wasn't a term of art. And so I, at some point I was invited out here, that is say um, the Bay Area to help with a Sears uh, subsidiary called Metascale. And this is around the time when data scientists became a, a job title. After that, I worked on uh, ad tech and a number of other use cases uh, under Intertrust as chief data scientist for them. This was during the days when there was a lot of things that you could do inferring about end users and their mobile activities. I've been pretty involved with 
data science education, uh, both with Galvanize and more recently uh, with, with Berkeley and the Udacity Advisory Board. And of course, my current role is at Uber, where I head up the uh, ATG data science teams. And what is the ATG part of it? So ATG is Advanced Technologies Group. That's primarily the self-driving division, although we've expanded the scope for what my teams do. Very, very exciting. Going back to your first transition from academia into industry, that was with Metascale, right? That's right. And how did you find that transition? What was unexpected uh, for you when you first came into industry and how did you go through that process in the early days? I guess it's probably easier to answer the question, what was expected? <laughs> I don't have to learn. It's fun. I enjoy getting thrown into new situations and figuring out what's going on and what works and what doesn't work and um, making a lot of mistakes along the way. It was looking back a uh, pretty lucky first role because I was able to touch a lot of different parts of the overall SHC portfolio. And we had a, we were given quite a bit of flexibility to experiment with what then was not standard uh, machine learning practices. And what would those practices or applications, what did they look like in that time? There was, of course, uh, machine learning applications for recommendations, for targeted marketing, for e-commerce was still, was not, was not as, as standardized. So there's still a lot to do in uh, information retrieval and search. One of the um, use cases that I was really proud of that we ended up doing a, a pilot of this was indoor navigation. So mm -hmm. we ended up leveraging our indoor navigation technology in, in some of the stores. And if you think about how, and big box retailers, you know, indoor navigation is still a pretty dark ages situation. We've been using GPS for 20 years now, and we still can't figure out how to do blue, tech, blue dot uh, navigation inside a store. So if you can't see the sky, it's like you're lost. Yeah. I don't know where to find things. And so the whole idea was getting from the in-person experience where you get what you're trying to purchase right away, but there's a lot of advantages to doing something with e-commerce. You, know, you, you get the other products you might like recommended to you immediately. You instantly see the products or a list of products that might match what you're looking for. And you have to walk nowhere. You don't have to find someone and find out a shelf and the aisle of where that product is. And so the idea was if we can do indoor navigation and more importantly is where machine learning comes in, route the path through a store from one corner of a store to another, there are numerous paths if you count the uh, side aisles, not just taking the main thoroughfares. Each one of those paths is a different experience. So if you can route a user from A to B along a path that is going to expose them to products that they might be more interested in, and um, if you think about a Sears store, there, there's everything from mm -hmm. tools to clothing that you could be routed by a path. You can get a very different experience. And this was something that a recommendation algorithm not only did very well for e-commerce, where we benchmarked it, it also was really useful for this use case. And we ended up getting to be very creative, uh, you know, given the computational constraints at the time and how to do those recommendations at this speed uh, with, with a latency that was quite restrictive back then. That's exactly what I was thinking. This is um, in 2012 or 2013, right? Yeah, 2012. So there would have been so many constraints from the data capture in terms of being able to track how people move throughout the store all the way through implementation of the project. Could you walk us through uh, some of those challenges around the end-to-end -end implementation and how you solved those at the time? 
Sure. And a lot of the challenges are really engineering challenges, not just uh, software engineering challenges. Even there are scattering effects. There are still, from my understanding, where the industry has evolved, which is surprisingly not a lot in the last six years. Bluetooth low energy was just coming out around that time. It's a mishmash of Bluetooth, of Wi-Fi, which is very soft signal and subject to quite a lot of scattering effects. There are a lot of experiments, at least at least back then, to do things like have uh, subtle patterning in the tiles so that if you're holding your phone, uh, the camera can see and navigate where it is by detecting the subtle patterns in, in the tiling to know where it is and different techniques like that. Um, I'm not sure that any of them has really taken hold, which is surprising. I would have thought that they would have by now. And so we had to both navigate around those very physical engineering constraints, of course, do the the, the software engineering, right? So implementing the algorithm, making sure that we did not use the absolute, maybe most sophisticated technology at the time, but spent a lot of work figuring out what would get us near uh, state-of-the-art results in matching, but was orders of magnitude faster and really what, what you ended up needing in order to be successful. And how was the implementation part creating the changes in the store based on the recommendations from the algorithm? So I can't say because I, I left shortly before the uh, launch happened. So I can't say ex- exactly what the implementation challenges were. Um, I'm sure, although I'm sure that there always are. One of the issues that can affect something like this is um, standardization of store, store layouts. Some businesses have pretty standardized, at least for some of their stores and, and others do not. At least for the SHC, we had a little bit more creativity in how each individual store is a snowflake. Yes. Really interesting. And from there, you went into Galvanize, more in an education area. Could you tell us a bit more about your time there? Yeah. So, you know, things have changed quite dramatically in the past six years. Six years ago, there were one, maybe two boot camps out there for data science education, one, maybe two master's programs that were just starting to launch pilots at Berkeley, um, where I'm at right now, and, and Galvanize being among them. So we focused a lot of time thinking about what kinds of problems are expected and are going to be expected that data science are going to be expected to solve and really focusing in on with 12 weeks for a boot camp, which is a terribly short time, 12 months for a master's program, which is also terribly short. You have to be really careful about what you do and what you do not teach in order to make sure that the students are successful in the long term. You know, I still work with several of my students, even from the early Galvanize program. I've hired them, I've, I've, I've worked on research projects with them over the years. And so I'm happy with the results because I'm happy that the students that have come out of these programs have been really remarkable. And uh, some of that is more a credit to the students than to our thoughtfulness in designing the program, it would be quite different for it to do it over again in 2018. It's a great thing to have done. What attracted you to that role? Always enjoyed teaching and helping others to you know, get excited about what I learn. And I guess I get a kick out of, out of sharing that with others. And that's panned out in over the years and what I've been doing with starting in academia, but working very practically on, on projects that ended up turning into industry projects. And then more the reverse nowadays, continuing the line uh, now at Berkeley with teaching, but still working uh, pretty shoulder to shoulder in the industry with on applying these projects and these technologies. And it keeps changing. Very little of what, as far as like grab bag of machine learning algorithms, obviously the principles and the mathematics is still pretty stable or pretty much the same. But both the technologies from an algorithmic perspective and technologies from a um, tools and ecosystem perspective 
perspective almost completely changed. Uh, very little of what I use now is something that I used four years ago. Even four years, right? There's so much change. And so with uh, your time at Galvanize, it's really interesting that, as you said, you sort of, in a way, went back into education. But you also had a much more expanded role than what you had had previously. And by that, I mean looking after data science, data engineering, full stack dev. What did you have to learn beforehand in order to be prepared for that role? So a lot of what I ended up learning was, you know, both how to run a quite a large org where, where you're not the expert in, in everything uh, that everyone in your teams are, are doing, but also uh, specifically mm-hmm. because it was an education product. I learned quite a lot about instructional design and the principles of when, like under one context, people learn and learn best and what are some of the common pitfalls that still exist in modern education. I've luckily been able to leverage what I learned there. To this day, when we redesign a Berkeley course or when we think about what's the best context for instruction now, I constantly am keeping uh, the lessons that I learned for instructional design uh, back in the galvanized days in the back of my mind. And what are some of those things that you keep in mind eh, through when you're doing instructional design, when you're thinking about those courses or that delivery? Mm-hmm. What are the, um, some of the things that you look out for? There are a lot of common pitfalls, first of all, that are intrinsic in our modern education that that really don't have to be anymore. One is that there's this phenomenon of teaching to the middle. For any topic and for any set of students, there's going to be a distribution of skill level and speed with which students are able to master those skills. And so there's going to be some students who may have already mastered those skills or mastered them or able to master them very quickly, either because of natural ability or because they've seen some of this before, and other students that are going to struggle. And this is something that's necessarily a intelligent versus less intelligent students. It's just there's all sorts of factors why that distribution might have the variance that it does. And so what ends up happening is as an instructor, there's this phenomenon called teaching to the middle. And so because you want to get the biggest bang for at least most of the students, you end up sort of making, giving instruction that makes the most advanced students bored and leaves the students that are maybe need the most attention uh, in the dust. And so quite a number of the students are going to be endemically frustrated with education, no matter where they are. And maybe they switch. Maybe for one topic, they're going to be frustrated because it's too slow. For another topic, they're going to be frustrated because it's not slow enough. And this is a symptom of the fact that you have to do this one-style-fits-all instruction. A teacher walks into a classroom, does performance art that they've either done it for the first time ever because it's the first time they're teaching this lesson, or maybe they've done it dozens of times in the past and they're Mm -hmm. really well-practiced at it. But it's the sort of thing that is not adaptable because it's a piece of... um, It's this performance, right? Now, there are several things that we can do in modern times to solve that. And so one is this idea of a flipped classroom where you will give content, usually video content, that hopefully brings everybody up to a certain level uh, by having access to that video content. But then the instructor's job is not to do performance art of what would then be captured in that video content, but to be more adaptable to each individual student's needs. We also have technology that can adapt and progress at the speed with the students. So using technology and, and uh, adaptive learning technologies so that each student gets to, you know, now they're not just watching a video, but they're actually watching video content 
content or, or interactive content, which is even better, that's adapting to the level at which they're progressing and mastering that, that set of skills. There's also a lot just in how that interaction works. So, so one of the mantras that we would get all of the data scientists and web development, et cetera, instructors to appreciate was that the person who does the talking in class does the work, does the learning. And so if you're teaching math and you're, you're up in front of the classroom doing all these math proofs and examples, then the professor gets really, really good or continues to get better at whatever they're teaching while everyone else might get lucky if they're paying attention hard and kind of mimicking the hard work on their own. Whereas if you ask questions, if you spend most the majority of your time actually pushing the students to work out the problems and actually don't do much of the work yourself, so to speak, that's sort of paradoxically an even better experience for students because they end up walking away with much more mastery. And how do these practice or these approaches, how do they look like in practice out there today where done well? Adaptive learning is certainly the best case scenario. That's uh, something that hasn't been necessarily achieved by, in most cases, you're not doing adaptive learning. Having flipped classroom uh, paradigm is something that we do it at Berkeley. I think more and more now that, that MOOC content video is, MOOC videos and other content online are, are available or, or things like a data camp and data quest. We have this like interactive coding. You have more options now for doing something that's more of a flip style instruction. And then does that change the role of the classroom to become more like a tutorial, like a people working on their own problem sets or with each other? If we have a large content of the material essentially online that the students can digest in their own time before coming together as a group, then what is the role of coming together as a group? What is covered in that instance? And is it still required, I guess? For many, it is still required. It's certainly, we've had libraries for a long time, so anybody can goodwill hunting up whatever they want to learn uh, on their own. Most people are not that extreme and would benefit from adaptive instruction and from being able to have an instructor to ask questions and and to work through specific challenges. And if you're executing well on a flip model, then when you come into class, you're maybe working on small projects and you're working with other learners and groups. That's the in-person time. And then then the instructor's responsibility is to jump in and sort of unblock small snags that otherwise would end up happening, that what would end up happening is you get the content when the instructor is available. And then when you go home and hit a snag, you're stuck because you're all alone then. That makes sense. And the other thing that you said about your time at Galvanize, which I thought was really interesting, was that you learned to create a team that could deliver the work without you necessarily being the expert across everything. Could you tell us a a little bit more about that transition and the challenges and what you did? So this is something that happens inevitably for anyone who has to manage uh, more than a few people is that you're not going to be the most skilled in that individual contribution role. In fact, uh, even if you started in that role, going from IC to manager, because it's your first role, eventually, or, or maybe I should say inevitably, you get rusty, especially in a field where things change so dramatically after a year or two, a lot of the technology is going to be quite different anyway. And figuring out ways where you are empowering the people who are the experts on your teams and are are now closer to the individual contribution. That's really what it's all about. And then there's certainly, there's a lot of theory about how to do that and how to do org building that's out there that I ended up benefiting from. And that, you know, over the years, I've had to learn a lot about what that looks like. Yes. And what are some of your favorite approaches or techniques to empower the team and manage the creative talent? 
there's quite a number of different approaches and my philosophy is typically typically that while no one approach is, is the right approach, you can pick one of multiple for the different situations. I guess themes that tend to translate across all uh, successful approaches is uh, you know, not necessarily being viewing your, yourself as the decision maker, right? The decisions really are going to be best made by those who are closest to the ground. Now, that's, of course, a balance, right? Because sometimes it is important to tie break and to be in a position to bring your own expertise, but that's not going to work for situations that we're talking about where you're not going to be the expert in every group that you're managing when you have a large enough org. Yes, that's right. And were there any specific challenges that you faced during that time around the rapid expansion or the rapid growth of the, the company and your team? Unequivocally, I'm sure that anyone who's gone through a uh, 10x growth experience in a startup can sympathize with this. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot that happens when you're a startup and, and you expand at the rate that, that uh, I have in, in the, that org and you know, several companies have been lucky enough to be involved in. It can get both hectic, managing communication it becomes very important. Making sure that there's not duplicate work is another uh, phenomenon that, that ends up happening when you rapidly expand and making sure that you have the right organizational design, which again is one of those. There's not a single answer, but more that in context, some answers work better for the situation than others. And you've got to play that, that game of picking the one that's right for the specific context, even if it's not right for all contexts. That is definitely a tough challenge. And could you tell us some of some of the projects that you've been excited about? Right. So most recently, one of the things that I've been very excited about is approaching in, in the context of the research that I do is centered around natural language processing. And in particular, I've been thinking quite a bit along with my team, which is some brilliant researchers in the lab about how we can use these modern natural language processing, natural language understanding techniques to solve very relevant and timely issues like the so-called fake news problem. This is something that's been an issue, at least it's been a high attention issue for the last two years. And our approach has been to see, like, from what dimension can machine learning contribute in a scalable way? I guess the first thing to mention is that there is no single fake news problem. Um, there are several aspects to it. And there is even more so no single fake news solution. Some of the solutions are going to be uh, centered around fact-checking and doing that hard work of going out and getting those facts. And that's something that, that machine learning is not really great at because if you had those factoids already at hand and it was just a matter of, like, extracting factoids from a news article and then comparing it to your database of all the factoids that are true, then it wouldn't really be new news. It would be something yes. that, that is not so new at all. So fact-checking is not going to be the whole story, although it's, it's going to be an important part of the story. Another part of the story is, and this is where we started getting involved, if you think about fake news, there's kind of two dimensions to this, right? One dimension is sort of on the reality side of things. Is what's being claimed, does it match with reality or does, is it a mismatch with reality? Is it false? You know, if it matches, it's true. If it doesn't match, it's, it's false. But then there's, there's sort of a human side to this too. In particular, um, if you think about the author or the propagator of the news or the article, the information content, what is their intent? Are they pushing an agenda? Are they trying to convince you of a 
explained get you to draw conclusions? Or is it more with the intent of laying out the facts and letting their reader decide what the truth is? And that question may actually be somewhat, you can consider it somewhat independently of whether or not the claims themselves that are being made are true. Now, of course, they're not independent at all. There's quite a deep correlation that we'd like to hypothesize, but you can kind of consider that as like a separate dimension for any article, right? So if you think about it, you, you can have articles that are making true claims. And ideally, those articles that are making true claims, the, the hypothesis would be those are going to be well correlated with people who are with articles with the intent of just sharing information. And that's the only intent, not to push an agenda or to force the, the reader to draw conclusions themselves, but to just share the facts and let them facts speak for themselves, right? And people that have maybe a more bad actors might try to push false claims. And the way they're going to push false claims is not with sharing the facts, but by doing something else. And this is another key aspect of our thinking is that it really hinges on this psychological phenomenon that when certain emotional triggers are pulled, as humans, we respond in a very predictable way. When we're angry, when we're upset, when we are afraid, or we feel like we need to act with urgency, our cognitive capacity actually gets depressed. We get less capable when it comes to reasoning about what it is that we're seeing or hearing or thinking about, and we move into reaction mode. And this is very well documented. So the surprising thing is that when we care about things the most, when it matters the most urgently or has the biggest impact, we think less well. That can be, well, from an evolutionary perspective, maybe sometimes it pays not to overthink things when there's danger, but right, better safe than sorry. From a fake news perspective, that's something that bad actors can take advantage of. So our hypothesis was that this is something that is being taken advantage of. And moreover, that can be detected by means of uh, machine learning, uh, that can be detected algorithmically and scalably. So while maybe you can't create a magic uh, deep learning truth detector, at least not for new factoid, what you can do is create a manipulation detector or an algorithm that scores in different ways, different dimensions of emotional engagement versus journalistic or or more fact-based presentation of, of information. Very interesting. And when did you start this project? Well, we first started uh, you know, generating these hypotheses and starting to research that particular problem several, you know, a couple years ago now. It's been something that's a passion project of mine and uh, several of my researchers, just several of them from you know, Galvanize alumni and also um, Berkeley alumni more, more recently. And we started with, uh, and this is speaking about what are the best practices for doing any project, even a research project, is we started with the simplest thing first. We put together some fast text and Jensen models just off the yeah. shelf to even see if in the data that we had available, there was signal that, that could detect this sort of manipulation versus not manipulation kinds of classes. And, and while we didn't get the results are not overwhelming, they were enough to validate the hypothesis that you know maybe with more sophisticated technologies or techniques, I should say, you can get good results. And our modern algorithms uh, use things that didn't even uh, nobody had invented it when we first got started. You know, we are using now uh, the latest context embeddings that Google has come out with this year. We are using uh, you hierarchical bi-directional LCMs. Um, we've done quite a lot of custom work uh, in, in attention mechanisms and how you structure the information compression of, of uh, encoding and decoding different sentences and paragraphs and, and articles over the past 18 months or so. We've been doing lots of uh, very fine-tuned or fine-grained tuning of the architecture in order to get the best results. And those best results in terms of speed or... Um... 
not in terms of speed. Speed is something where sometimes there's a trade-off. So it's all, you you can test it out and uh, see, I take full responsibility for any failures of the algorithm and and in particular (laughs) of the scraping, which is often what's going on there. When there are failures, then of course the team gets all the credit for for all the successes. Yeah, so it's at fakerfact.org, F-A-K-E-R-F-A-C-T.org. It'll score algorithms. uh, We have classifiers for um, Wiki, which is more uh, scientific and encyclopedic style articles, journalism, which is supposed to be the gold standard for journalism and investigation of new facts and writing in that information sharing mode of journalism. There's sensational, which is going to be more clickbaity or driving uh, heightened emotion opinions, which may be orthogonal to writing in a journalistic style. So like an op-ed might be written in a journalistic mm-hmm. style, but clearly injects things that are more matters of opinion than fact-based. Satire. So this is the sort of thing that you see on The Onion, for instance, or the Borowitz Report, right? And then uh, agenda-driven, which is trying to push a particular opinion or or a particular conclusion and is going to tend to be less responsive to the facts. Articles that are written with agenda-driven content and get back that content uh, tend to be more about driving an agenda than or a conclusion than about sharing and making room for the, um, the reader to, to draw the conclusions for themselves. Really interesting. And what have you or your students found as the toughest challenge in this journey so far? The data, which is always the toughest challenge, right? Coming up with the right data, getting you know, down in the, in the nitty gritty for uh, making sure you're scraping the right material from a URL, making sure that that data is fresh, making sure that the labeling is solid. So we, we have a problem. So it falls under the context of semi-supervised. We have lots of URLs and lots of articles that are labeled, but making sure that those labels are sound and are not dirty labels is in fake news in general, one of the biggest challenges that, that everybody is dealing with. And what that we've developed several techniques for how to bootstrap. You know, bootstrapping traditionally is you have small number of labels and then use a classifier to bootstrap out to label your entire data set. This is sort of the process in reverse. You have plenty of labels, but they're not they're not all reliable. And so figuring out creative ways in order to leverage an algorithm to help you curate, self-curate, but uh, not leverage the algorithm so much that you don't have kind of a ground truth fixed point external to that curation process is where we've focused a lot of our efforts. And what would you like FakerFact to become? That's an answer for users to decide, right? We put it out there. It's been a fun journey getting it ready and um, getting it to the point where it is. And where it ends up is really a matter of how interesting it is for people to use. That's right. And are you guys still working on it now? And what are some of the next steps or the, I guess, the current work being done on it? Oh, sure. Yeah, we're, we're constantly trying new hypotheses. One of the things where we're, we've been focusing on quite a bit is actually, it's hard to publish results. We have internal results, but there's no sort of like image net or academic standard of fake news data that everybody can benchmark against. So working to establish an academic standard like image net for fake news is what we've been thinking about most recently. So exciting. And how do you divide your time between all your projects and initiatives? That's something that I'm so impressed with. What's your secret? How do you do it? That is the constant question. Most of my time is spent on my day job, of course, as it should be. And then I late nights and weekends, I guess, is, is really the answer. Sometimes I question how I keep up myself. You're a good man. No, it's, um, we all really appreciate the effort because the inroads that you're making across your different projects are fantastic and very necessary for the world. Thank you very much. So, and what 
Could you tell us, acknowledging that there is obviously um, some level of confidentiality and, and secrecy, but about your day job, what could you tell us about that? Well, not a lot, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> That is all good. However, I did notice that it looks like you are hiring. Is that correct? <laughs> are you looking for, for people at the moment? Always. I've had that hiring Always. On, on LinkedIn since I since I I think I, since I first opened the LinkedIn account. And I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen fit to pull it off uh, since. That is fantastic. And what a type of um, skill sets that you look for in, in people? It's really a diversity of, of skills. Uh, so really depends on the team, on the group. There are a lot of good approaches to classifying the different kinds of data scientists that are out there, data engineering, data machine learning experts, people that are more capable with pipelines and scaling up algorithms, people that are more specialists in deep learning or in specifics of algorithm implementation, and then analysts, of course, which is unfortunately um, people that, that are, are good at, you know, statistics-based analysts, but... Uh, but analysts, nonetheless, are good at answering questions of whether or not science, with the appropriate amount of scientific rigor, is another key set of skills that unfortunately get, does not get enough attention with all of the cool new stuff that we can do with technology. Yes. So then let's move on to some of the listener questions. Uh, the, the first one is, uh, what makes a great data scientist? rather loaded question, I guess. I think the standard answer to that that I've heard is curiosity or something like that. And these, these sort of like uh, one set, very thick terms that, ha that have a lot of meaning to a lot of people and um, are not terribly transparent. Yeah, I think that maybe the more important question is really uh, what makes a good data scientist for a particular job? And answering that question really depends on the job that you're seeking. What I would do is find out what you enjoy about grab bag or, or the multiplicity of different data science skills that I listed, uh, and then find the roles that are looking for those skills. Certainly, there are roles looking for all of those skills. And I would sort of turn it around and find out what makes you passionate about being a data scientist and then find the right fit that way. How did you find that in your case? How did you find what makes you passionate to be a data scientist? Ah, yeah. So I enjoy the science of it very much and, and making sure that we are asking questions in a scientifically sound way. I also do like the experience of, of solving problems that we didn't think that we could solve or that, that might have not seemed possible and, and, and using creative solutions, um, algorithmic solutions in order to solve those problems. That's been kind of the sweet spot that I've tried to focus a lot of my efforts over the years. What do you think makes a great data science leader? Some of it has to do with education. Again, I think it really depends on the job. There are different leadership skills needed for different roles and finding that, that right match. Educating and evangelizing is often a core skill set. Certainly just uh, managing a team and having vision for what that team should be doing is often another skill set. Whether you're, you know, sometimes you're, you're working for a small organization, in which case, you know, setting that course and, and getting the team to help create that course with you is, is part of the core skill sets of a data science leader. In other teams, maybe you have a, a narrower auspices, but you get to be a little bit more hands-on with, with what that particular auspices is. And so, again, I don't think there is one generic answer for that kind of question. It really does depend on the specific leadership role that you're being recruited for. That is very true, but those are very important attributes that you just uh, listed. So thank you. And what do you see as the current challenges in the industry? So one thing that on the implementation side, deep learning has become more and more 
the rule and not the exception. And we're getting to benefit from a lot of the competition in different ecosystems, you know, from PyTorch and um, versus like TensorFlow, for instance, being able to come up with solutions that allow you to seamlessly move within those ecosystems is something that, because uh, you're going to continue to see the implementations and contributions that you want to use from each of them. I don't necessarily think that that's the most pressing, but that's something that more recently I've had to think about having uh, for larger companies having the and then ability to access the data at scale integrate it and uh, leverage machine learning in the right way uh, with the right source of hardware this is something that that gets a lot of attention from Michelangelo um, that's the parts that are public are, are only part of the story and so that's a challenge that uh, any large organization you know, blessed with sufficient data is going to have to solve. So being conscious of time, I only had one last question uh, for you. And I do have to say that this has been extremely, extremely enjoyable and so valuable. So thank you. Thank you very much. And the last question is, what is one piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Well, as maybe you're told by my, by my artful non-answers to some of these other questions, or maybe less artful I don't know that there's uh, one big moral or piece of advice that, I, that I'd like to leave. One of the things that, that I do or conclusions that I do like to draw when I tell something like the fake effect story is that a lot of the difference between being successful with, say, machine learning applications and not or not as successful centers around uh, making sure that you're answering the right problems and that you're solving the right problems. Trying to solve the can we um, answer if something's true or not algorithmically is, is not necessarily the right problem, whereas trying to detect uh, manipulation is much more tractable. So making sure that you are working to answer the right problem or answer the right questions to solve the right problems is maybe one of the more important things to focus your time on when you are in the business of machine learning applications or data science more generally. That is excellent. A super, super, super important, a crucial part of the job and a great way to make a difference. That is a fantastic note to end on. Mike, I can't thank you enough for that. That was excellent. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom and thoughts. Sure. Thank you for having me. Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. 
If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.